And I think what in particular you should notice as we read this final section is that as we've seen in the first two chapters of Colossians, all these words of glorification for Jesus Christ and his power, the fullness of deity that he has. And in this closing section, what we really have is a series of applications. What we see is how we're now supposed to live out these truths that have been spoken of earlier in this book. And so look in particular for ways that this passage points us to our union with Christ and how that union leads us to now live a life that glorifies God. Heavenly Father, we know that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. We need your Holy Spirit if we are to understand your word. And so God, again, open our eyes to your word. Send your spirit to us so that we can both see your word, we can understand your word, and so that we can put our faith in your word. God, we need your help for both of these things. And so come now and help us that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 18. I'll start in 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you have fulfilled the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, the main question I want to address this morning in my message is, how do we experience union with Christ? How do we experience union with Christ? Even though our text for this morning is 3 verse 5 to 418, I am probably going to spend the bulk of my time in chapter 2 and in 3 verses 1 to 4. And that's because chapter 2 and 3 verses 1 to 4 form the basis of what Paul commands in our passage this morning. And we have to understand very clearly what Paul says in that chapter and in those verses if we are going to understand these commands that he gives to us this morning. So allow me to take my time in getting up to these commands in chapters 3 and 4, and I think you'll understand why before the end of the message. Last week, as we looked at Colossians chapter 2, I spoke about different things we pursue as human beings to find the deepest satisfaction for our souls. Paul's main point in chapter 2, I believe, is that the deepest satisfaction for any human being is found only in Christ, because only in Christ does the fullness of deity dwell. At the same time, Paul was writing about this precisely because in the church in Colossae, there were some who were arguing against this point. They weren't denying that our deepest needs are spiritual or that Christ can help fulfill those needs, but they were arguing that more than just Christ was needed. Again, Colossians 2 verses 16 to 19 says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So this was the problem in Colossae. People accepted Christ, but they also wanted to add just a little bit to him. They wanted to add rules about food and drink and festival and new moon and Sabbath and asceticism and worship of angels. I translated this to our own day by arguing that oftentimes what we want to add to Christ is a good bit of novelty to our lives by way of social media or other internet applications. We think that we need these things in order to truly satisfy every part of who we are, contrary to the message of Christ. Paul's most basic response to this problem was stated in verse 9 of chapter 2, where he said, For in him, that is in Christ Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, which means everything we need is in Christ Jesus. Because what our hearts most deeply need is God himself. What our hearts most deeply need is deity. And deity is found in the fullness of Christ. And that means that outside of Christ is not found any deity, is not found any of God. And so if we want to truly satisfy our souls, we must run to Christ and we must run to Christ alone and not add anything else to him, not seek anything outside of him. He has all that we need. And yet this does leave for us a big question. If you were to stop reading at the end of chapter 2, you might think that Paul had in mind that in order to experience union with Christ, there wasn't anything that we were supposed to do. It was just supposed to strike us like a lightning bolt, and we were just supposed to somehow know union with Christ. Or maybe we were supposed to practice what the Eastern religions do. We just all sit on a carpet together and we say, um, until we experience the the fullness of Christ. There's no direction in terms of how do we receive this fullness of Christ that you're talking about, Paul. You've, you've talked a lot about how we don't receive it. We don't go after these extra rules. We don't go after these philosophies. Is there any positive thing that we possibly can do to receive the fullness of Christ? Again, the very last verses of Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." So again, Paul has ruled out regulations. He seems to even be ruling out acts of religion as a way to come into the fullness of Christ that he has so beautifully described earlier in Colossians. And indeed, I'm afraid it seems that many Christians have lived their Christian lives as that they stop at the end of Colossians chapter 2. They've come to understand the fullness of Christ. They've come to understand the grace of God. But then they feel like that leaves them with nothing further to do aside from trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and they just kind of stop there. We've been forgiven and our job now as Christians is basically to enjoy that forgiveness. Certainly it would be wrong, this this mindset says, to walk away from Christ. You do have to do basic Christian things like go to church and you have to own a Bible and you have to pray when you need to. 
But they would say anything beyond that just strikes me as sheer legalism and works righteousness. Christ has already forgiven us, so we're all set. There's nothing more for us to do. Well, while it's certainly always right to be worried about legalism and works righteousness, and indeed, in a sense, this is precisely what Paul is rebuking here, thinking of the Christian life in this way that we're fundamentally forgiven and there's nothing more for us to do is really misconstruing how God has granted us forgiveness. And that is what Paul illuminates beginning here in chapter 3. Last week I used the analogy of someone filling a teacup or a mug with a pitcher versus throwing that mug into the ocean as a way of filling it up. In this case, the the person who appreciates the forgiveness of Christ but sees little need for more action, their problem is precisely that they have this view of being filled by Jesus as if he were pouring into our cup something other than himself, as if he were pouring into our cup only forgiveness and then leaving us there. And so, in that view, Christ has poured our cup full of forgiveness and now we can just sit at the table, we can enjoy this cup of forgiveness, and that's what it really means to be a Christian. But the problem is that this is not how you have received Christ. When Christ filled us, he did not stand there with a pitcher filling us with various things. No, when Christ filled us, it is as we were thrown into the ocean of Jesus Christ. We were thrown into him and that, ha- that is how our cup has been filled. We have received forgiveness, but we have only received forgiveness in Christ as part of Christ. The only reason why you can be forgiven and why you can be counted innocent of your trespasses is because you are united to Jesus. And Jesus himself was perfectly righteous and he was free from all sin. And because he took your sin upon himself and he died the agonizing death, thereby suffering the fate that you deserved. And so you see, forgiveness is not some liquid or some gas that Jesus can just take and he can pass to you separate from himself. No, Jesus offers you forgiveness, but he only offers you forgiveness in one place. That is, in himself. Completely connected to him and united to him. To the extent that we get Jesus himself, we get forgiveness. But we don't get forgiveness and then go looking for more of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate Christ from the forgiveness that he offers. And so Jesus is not just pouring our cups full of forgiveness or wisdom or love or whatever it else, whatever else it is we think we need in our lives. No, he is giving us himself. And as we get Jesus Christ himself, then we receive all of his riches and treasures. We receive the forgiveness of sin, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus' message is, come to me and you will receive all that you need. Jesus is the ocean, and if we want our cups filled, then the only way they can be filled is by dunking our cups in Christ himself, not waiting for some other benefit or reward. Now, I understand that perhaps this all sounds a bit theoretical at the moment, but the practical implications of understanding the distinction here are massive, and that's precisely where 
Paul goes in chapter 3. If Christ's benefits don't come apart from Christ himself, then that means that the only way that we can attain any one of Christ's benefits is to attain all of his benefits. The only way that we can attain any one of Christ's benefits is to attain all of his benefits because all of his benefits are united in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ cannot be divided into different parts according to what different people may need. He is one God forever. Amen. And so for that reason, when we come to Christ, even if we only come for one benefit, we must stay and find that in Christ we receive so much more. I'll flesh this out a bit more, but just one practical example. If you want to come to Jesus for forgiveness, then you can come to Jesus and you can receive forgiveness. But you can't just come and receive forgiveness and move on. You have to come to him for all that he is and all that he offers. Because again, forgiveness is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. So to get a more practical sense of what this means, let's look at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. So Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now I want to look at these verses in three chunks. First we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then verse 3, and then we'll look at verse 4. So first, verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Notice first the indicative in this verse. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. If you have come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then that is true of you. But what does this mean, practically speaking? It means you seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, here is the image that Paul is giving us. You have been raised with Christ. You see, you have not merely been given something by Christ. Christ is not merely your teacher and you are his student. Christ did not first do something for us and now we have to follow in his footsteps. All those things are true to some degree, but none of them express the deepest nature of things. No, something real, something metaphysical happened to you if you are a Christian. Namely, you were raised with Christ. You were united with him in his resurrection. Now, you may ask the very common sense question, how could I have been raised with Christ? I was not even born yet. What Paul says here is clearly physically impossible. But beloved, God knew you even before you were born. He designed you before you were born. You yourself are a part of God's design and plan for the cosmos. And therefore, God put you in Christ even before you were born. When Christ rose from the dead in 33 AD, you were there with him, united to him. 
So what does this mean? To use the second half of verse 3, it means that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, if you are wondering how to live today, that question has already been answered for you. You are to live as Christ did because you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. Your whole reason and motive for existence is no longer to prove anything about yourself. It is no longer to make yourself look good or to have any particular attainments for yourself. You are not yourself anymore. Your life is hidden with Christ and in Christ. Your motive and reason for existence is now to let Christ work through you on behalf of others and to make Christ look good through your own life. Because your life is Christ's life, and Christ's life is your life. You see, you cannot come to Jesus for particular things, but not for some other things. Jesus is a package deal. If you come to Jesus, that means you must be raised with Jesus. And if you are raised with Jesus, that means the only option left for your life is to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. To set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is a necessity. It is not a necessity so much of obligation as much as it is a necessity of reality. In other words, you don't do this, you don't set your mind on things that are above, mainly because God told you so, and now you have to do what God says. Again, that clearly is true, we ought to do what God says. But rather, it is saying that you must set your mind on things that are above, because that is already where your mind is if you have been raised with Christ. You must do this because in reality, you are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And if that is true, then how could you not seek the things that are above? The things that are above are the very things that are all around you, if you are indeed united to Christ. Indeed, if you did not seek the things that are above, would that not be a clear indication that you are actually not living in the place that is above, where Christ is living? Again, in that framework, we don't obey Jesus because he is in charge and we are not. We obey Jesus because we are actually united to him. And therefore, whatever it is that Jesus does, that is what we ourselves do. It might be helpful to think of a marionette. One of those puppets where you have the strings on the hands and on the feet. When we are saved, it's like strings are suddenly formed between us and Christ. And Christ isn't just a puppeteer, just manipulating that wooden cross that moves the puppet. No, Christ is still living and breathing and doing all of his good works. And it just so happens that strings are now attached between his hands and our hands, and his feet and our feet, such that all that Christ is doing are the very things that we ourselves now do, because we are raised with him, and we are united to him. We can no longer go on living as we did before, but out of our union with Christ, 
We live in a new way. So let's go on to verse 3, where Paul says, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So notice what the Apostle Paul is doing here. In verse 1, he said, you have been raised with Christ. Now in verse 3, he says, you have died. Again, our union with Christ is total. We don't get to put on only a part of Christ. We put on all of him. If we get Christ, then that means that we get resurrection life, but it also means that we get the death that he died. And because we died with Christ, that means we only have life in one place now, namely hidden with Christ in God. There is no other life remaining for us any longer because we died with him. And again, this isn't a matter so much of our choosing or acting in this way. The Apostle Paul is simply stating a fact. It is certainly a fact that will have practical ramifications for our lives, as we will see in just a moment. But nevertheless, it is a fact apart from any of our own actions that we have been crucified with Christ. And then in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul finishes this triad of our union with Christ. First, he says that we have been raised with him. And then he says that we have died with him. And finally, here it says that we will appear with him in glory. This is the only aspect of our union with Christ that is still awaiting for us in the future. This appearance in glory. Uh, Don gave me some feedback from my sermon last week and said, you know, you talk too much about the future union that we have with Christ. And he didn't talk enough about our experience here and now. But beloved, in my sermon last week, I meant everything I said to be about our union with Christ here and now. Yes, we do have an even more glorious union with Christ awaiting us. That is our ultimate hope. That great marriage supper of the Lamb when our marriage to Christ will finally be revealed and we will enjoy perfect union. But beloved, that union that we will experience on that great day, we get a foretaste of here and now. The only thing still awaiting us is that appearance with Christ in glory. But beloved, our lives should overflow here and now with the joy of knowing union with Christ moment by moment as the satisfaction for our souls. So that even if we lose every good earthly thing that we have, all of our possessions, all of our family, whatever earthly loss we may have, we should be able to know so much joy in our union with Christ that it far surpasses any earthly joy we have. That is the nature, the extent of our union with Christ, even here and now. And again, only greater things are coming to us, beloved. And so Paul says that we are united to Christ in life and in death, and we are even united with him in preparation for this future appearance in glory when we will appear with him with glorious new bodies, never to be separated from him for all eternity. 
And so the rest of chapter 3 and 4 is simply putting this principle into practice. Again, Paul has already stated, how can we not experience union with Christ? We, we can't experience union with Christ by adding our own rules, our own good ideas, worldly philosophies. These are not ways to experience union with Christ. And so now, in this final section of his letter, what Paul is going to address is how we can positively experience this union with Christ, this reality of Christ's life in us, Christ's death in us, and the hope of future glory. So first, let me try to summarize my understanding of the rest of this chapter, and then we'll briefly look at some of the specifics. The simplest way I know to capture what Paul says here is that if we want to experience union with Christ, then we must simply live in union with Christ. Now, I I know this may sound unhelpful or tautological, but I promise it makes sense that if we want to experience union with Christ, then we must live in union with Christ. So go back just briefly to the marionette example that I gave. Again, Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, then this example is true of you whether you really feel it or not. Whether you feel the union with Christ or not, you have been united with Christ by God. But all of us certainly want to feel this reality more dearly and more daily and more constantly. We don't just want to know the fact that we've been united with Christ. We want to truly experience our union with Christ. You can think of someone who is married, but they don't feel married. Maybe they feel distant from their spouse. I don't think that any married person would say they simply want to have a marriage certificate, but nothing more. No, if you get married, it's because you want to be married. You want to experience marriage. You want to be with the other person. In the same way, for anyone that becomes a Christian, it cannot be the case for you that you merely want some certificate that says you're a Christian. No, to be a Christian is to say that I love this man, Jesus Christ, and I want to know him. And so... The path to experiencing that reality is the path of union with Christ. And the only way to experience union with Christ is to live out our union with Christ. Let me give just one personal example from this past week, and then I'll get to the examples of Colossians 3 and 4. Now, I had a very busy week this past week, and then even the weeks before this past week and for the next three weeks, My schedule looks just extremely busy, and most of the time, if my schedule were so packed, I would be tempted to think, poor me, I have all this to do, and there's no one that can help me, and I'm going to miss out on so many other fun things that so many other people get to do. It would make me dislike much of my work and would probably even lead to moments of escapism where I know I should be doing work, but again, I just feel the weight is too much to bear, and so I shirk my responsibilities for a little while. Well, needless to say, when I have this attitude and when, my, when I live my life in this way, I do not feel very near to Jesus Christ. I don't feel like God is close to me and that he's using me in some powerful way to redeem the world. Sure, I may enjoy some moments of trivial pleasures, but there's no deep satisfaction here. And my work obviously doesn't go anywhere. I must sometime return to it 
with it being as big a mountain as it was before. And so just this past week, as I was really studying and focusing on union with Christ, I just thought, what would Jesus do in this situation that I'm in? Just having so much more to do than I feel like I could possibly do in my own strength. What would Christ do in the midst of just a mountain of work? And I thought, well, I'm sure that Jesus would not sulk. He would not feel bad for himself or pity himself. He would not look for moments of escape. No, he would size up his work. He would see all the good that there is to be done in it. And he would cheerfully tackle the work for the glory of God. And then I thought, well, Jesus is within me and I am in him. If I want to walk in his will right now, then I can do that. And so I did. And because I did, I did not have to experience any sort of separation or distance from God. Rather, I felt that in my working, even in the midst of all that I had to do, I truly felt that I was doing God's will and that Christ was working through me. I felt like I was in union with God, even in the midst of a busy schedule. I believe that that is essentially what Paul is saying in the rest of these verses, is as we live in obedience to God, as we live in the reality that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, that is how we live in constant fellowship with God. Not simply knowing that our union with Christ is a fact that God accomplished, but knowing in our very heart of hearts that we are married to Christ as a husband is married to a beautiful bride. And so see the big outline of the remainder of chapter 3. In verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then at the next paragraph break, which in my text is verse 12, it says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and, and he goes on. So this is the pattern that we take for experiencing union with Christ. We put to death what is earthly in us, and we put on those things that are heavenly and pleasing to God. Notice that even though Paul here lists many things that we are to do, and he lists many things that we are not to do, he does not use the verbs, do this and don't do that. Rather, he uses the verbs, put to death and put on. Now, why does the Apostle Paul say, put to death and put on? Is it just because he's trying to be extra strong about his commandments? Like he's trying to say, try really hard to do these things as if you're putting yourself to death. That's how hard you're supposed to work. Well, surely the Apostle Paul and God himself want us to work that hard, but that's not the main reason why Paul uses these verbs in this passage. The basic reason why Paul uses the verbs put to death and put on is because Christ Jesus himself was put to death. And because every good deed that we do has already been done in Christ. And therefore we simply put him on. So Christian obedience is not so much a matter of starting to do certain things and stopping to do others as it is a matter of letting Christ's death be the death of our evil works and letting Christ's righteous life be the life that we now live. 
If there is any uncertainty about what we are to die to or what we are to live to, let's now look at these verses in more detail. And so Colossians 3, verses 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We'll come back to verse 11 in just a little bit. What Paul gives us here is certainly not a comprehensive list of all the wrong things that we must not do, but it is a representative list. Even though it would certainly be worthwhile to talk through each of these things and to understand what they involve, we don't have time for that this morning. And so I just want to notice what is unifying about all of these things that Paul lists. What is unifying about all these things that Paul lists is that all of these things are hellish. All of these things are from below. All of these things are of death. We can list out these different actions, whether covetousness or idolatry or sexual immorality or lying. We can list out these various actions, but all of these actions have the very same source. They come from the father of lies, the devil himself. In Proverbs 8, verse 36, God says, All who hate me love death. That's what all of these behaviors are, beloved. They are all death. And we who have life in Christ, we cannot possibly live in death. It is an impossibility. We can no longer carry out the works of Satan, a liar and a murderer, because we have died to him and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. If you are a Christian, it is an impossibility that you continue to live in these old patterns of life. God has given each of us a conscience to know what is right and wrong, to know what is life and what is death. When I was busy this past week, how is it that I knew that self-pity was wrong and that taking breaks from my work was wrong. Well, yes, the Bible does talk about it, but most basically I knew because I felt guilty, because my conscience was testifying against me. I felt like death. And so for a Christian, we all must have consciences that are sensitive to, the, to God himself. And if we feel guilty, If we feel like we are going astray in some way, then those works must stop. We have been raised with Christ and the works of death no longer have power over us. We should be able to live daily with a clean conscience, living out of our union with Christ. Moving on to the next passage. Just before Proverbs 8.36 is Proverbs 8.35. Proverbs 8.35 says, Forever finds me, finds life. And that's what the next list of actions calls out. It calls out those actions that are actions unto life. Disobedience is death and righteousness is life. Colossians 3 
verses 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Beloved, do you see how beautiful these positive actions are that scripture here calls us to? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And Paul says there at the end that whatever we do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, the very reason why Paul can exhort us in this way is because we are in Christ. And therefore, everything that we do can be done out of the strength that Christ provides. And notice the pinnacle of all the qualities that Paul here exhorts us to have in verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Beloved, we as a people in Christ must exhibit the attribute, the characteristic of love above all things. This is the very thing that Christ has called us to. And so if we are indeed raised with him, the primary way that resurrection life shows itself out is in love toward one another, love toward our neighbors, and love even toward our enemies. This is the life that Christ has for us. And lastly, not only is living in Christ in this way a personal endeavor that each of us make, although it is a deeply personal endeavor, and our union with Christ is a deeply personal union, This chapter also makes clear that there is fruit of living in this way that leads to a supernaturally beautiful community. And so look at Colossians 3 verse 11. He says here, he's talking about in the church, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Beloved, we here in the church should not acknowledge the differences that exist between us on the basis of our wealth, on the basis of our politics, on the basis of our educational status, on the basis of anything else. If Christ lives in each one of us, then Christ is all, and he is in all. There is no other community like this on the earth that can be united from every single different corner of the globe, every single different background, like we can be united in Jesus Christ. And then Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, beloved, what other community is there on the face of the earth where when they come together, what they most want to do is sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another with thankfulness in our hearts. 
Beloved, this is the supernaturally beautiful community that the gospel creates. And then lastly, in Colossians 3.18, down to 4.1, Paul goes through all these different parts of a family, all the different parts of a household to show how Christ transforms every single part of the household. So read with me in Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, beloved, we see that in the church of Jesus Christ, that it was so potent, even back in that day, to break down this dividing wall between slaves and masters. That when they came into church, the master could no longer have a slave. And the slave's master was no longer the one who owned them, but both of them had one master, Jesus Christ. Because our union with Christ is such that it is not just a spiritual union with him, but it includes our whole selves, our very bodies, Our very souls, our very lives, our very work is all done in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. And because we have been died, because we have died and we have been raised with Christ, we know that we are one with Him in every way. So, beloved, my prayer is that we here at Providence would be this supernaturally beautiful community because we have been united to Christ, body and soul. That we would all know in our own life experience that his death is our death, that we no longer do evil deeds, and that his life is our life, that we live to love God and to love others. And in this way, we don't merely receive some benefits from Christ. We don't merely get to enjoy part of the glory of knowing Christ, but rather we get to know the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this gives us a supernatural joy that is full of glory. And in this way, we receive every benefit that comes with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, I exhort you and implore you to turn to him this morning. Count his death as your death. Count his resurrection as your resurrection. And you will know a union with God that surpasses any earthly pleasure. Let me pray for us now, and then I'll open it to you for prayers of confession and petition. Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you and thank you for sending Christ in such a way that he could represent us, that he could die the death that we deserved, that he could rise again to newness of life with power that we ourselves can now have. 
God, your plan of redemption is truly remarkable to us. It is amazing to us, God, your wisdom that you displayed in Christ Jesus and in his work. And so, God, we do pray this morning that you would help us to know this reality ever more deeply. Help us to taste of Christ ever more fully, Lord, so that we ourselves may be fully known by you. Would you now receive our prayers of petition and confession as we come to you in the name of Christ.